Fractals, War, and the Science of Inside Out. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Listen, a lot of travel coming up, a lot of events. I'm going to be at the Wild Goose Festival along with the liturgists this week in Hot Springs, North Carolina. Be in Redlands, California next week in New York City the week after that. Tons of stuff. Head to MikeMcCarg.com slash events to learn more. But for now, let's get it started. Hey, Mike. Very appreciative of you and anybody who helps you on this podcast. It has been a tremendous help to me in my walk with God and my relationships with others. I am a deconstructing Christian, currently dating an agnostic girl. We have theological discussion often, which can range from invigorating to frustrating. As you might imagine, some people are thrilled and some people are not thrilled. I was wondering what the science is behind being unequally yoked what that phrase actually means to you, and if you have any other advice on the issue. Thank you very much, Mike. Really appreciate it. You know, this is a question that gets sent into the show constantly. It's been a recorded question many times. It's been a a question that people type even more than that. Unequally yoked. Everybody's really concerned about it. Uh, What's the deal? This is specifically a phrase uh, used in the New Testament in a couple different contexts. One is unequally yoked is another. Another is mixing light and dark. Modern Christians interpret to mean that Christians shouldn't date non-Christians. And I actually think that's a, a reasonable interpretation of that text. Well, excuse me, not date. People didn't date in biblical times, but they uh, shouldn't be you know, involved with in serious or intimate relationships. And some could even interpret that to mean uh, partnerships as well, as in business partnerships. Um, but the, the metaphor here is an agricultural one. A yoke is something you put on an animal, typically over its shoulders, in order to use that animal for work, specifically pulling work. And to unequally yoke would be to yoke an ox to a horse, for example. And those two animals have different characteristics in the work they're able to do. An ox can pull harder, longer than a horse, but a horse can, of course, move faster than an ox. So they're not going to be able to pull a plow straight if you unequally yoke them. And that's the metaphor we're using. But what does that mean in terms of science? What's the science behind being unequally yoked? Well, it's interesting. Many studies and surveys do show that interfaith marriages are a bit more likely to end in divorce than marriages between people of the same faith tradition or faith heritage. And furthermore, that the more difference there is between the faiths of the members of the marriage, the more likely it is that's going to create marital strife or divorce. You can imagine that the difference between you know, a Southern Baptist and a non-denominational evangelical marriage would be a lot different than a Muslim-Mormon marriage, for example. There's 
great differences in the faith traditions of the latter than there is in the former. Interestingly enough, even marriages between people of the same faith have different success rates. For example, statistically, marriages between atheists are the least likely to end in divorce, and some studies show that people who self-identify as born-again Christians are the most likely to have a marriage that ends in divorce. Uh, Now, a lot of people pick that data apart, uh, especially with something I call the no true Scotsman fallacy. Basically, those aren't real Christians as the defense. Regardless, what we're talking about is the labels that people assign to themselves. And so people are self-identified atheists in a marriage, more likely to stay together than people who are self-identified born-again Christians. But oddly enough, it's not theological issues or discussions that drive these difficulties in marriage. It's very practical. Are we going to have a Christmas tree? Are our kids going to be baptized? It's those ways that faith intersects everyday living that causes interfaith marriages to have some trouble. Now, I don't think people from different faith traditions marrying is some death sentence for a marriage. I think there is some wisdom in this passage that it's an easier way to keep a marriage together if people have similar religious backgrounds. But if people hold their faith uh, in humility with a bit of openness, this doesn't have to be something that is damaging to marriage. And in fact, we're talking about a couple percentage points here. Uh, this is one factor. It's not a, it's not an automatic, you know, divorce if you marry someone from a different faith tradition. I would say that the more different your backgrounds are, the more you're going to have to be intentional about compromise and communication. But any marriage is made better when you talk more and you compromise on important issues. I've been married 15 years very happily, and compromise and communication is a huge, huge part of marital success, interfaith or not. Our next question came in via email from my buddy Lanny Donahoe. He asks, I have done some study and know a bit about the amazing concepts of three things that I think are all related. Basically, patterns in the universe. I would love to hear you talk about Fibonacci numbers, fractals, and spirals. It would be great to hear you give examples of what all these are, and then to see if you have thoughts about how these patterns might affect us in our daily lives, our thought processes, our relationships, etc. I've heard recently that even the stock market can be predicted to a degree based on Fibonacci numbers. But I am wondering if these things exist in unique ways inside our brains and in our bodies and even in our relationships. There you go. Well, the first thing, and this is critical on this question, is I'm not a math whiz. And when you're talking about fractals and the Fibonacci sequence and the spirals you can produce uh, in either, you're talking about pure mathematics and even a form of mathematics that... Uh, is halfway computer science. It's not possible to execute these equations without a lot of computational power. And so I'm going to speak by synthesizing what I've studied mathematicians 
talk about? I spent a long time researching this question, more than I've spent on any question in the history of the program, and I'm still sure there's some problems with this answer. I bet a math PhD or two that listens to the program is going to email me, and I'll have a correction in a future episode. So I've got to start with a disclaimer. We are going deep, deep into math here. Now, the Fibonacci numbers uh, are a sequence of numbers where each sequential digit is the sum of the prior two numbers. So if I were to read some of the numbers in that sequence, they would go 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, etc., etc. And the way that works is 0 plus 1 is 1. 1 plus 1 is 2. 1 plus 2 is 3. 2 plus 3 is 5. 3 plus 5 is 8 and so forth, and so forth. You're adding the series on top of itself. Now, the Fibonacci sequence, or Fibonacci numbers, are related to another concept, which is fractals. Fractals are nonlinear equations that generate a repeating pattern as they scale. So it's a, a natural phenomenon or a mathematical set, either one, that when you graph it, displays a pattern at every scale. The Mandelbrot set, uh, or Mandelbrot set, I don't really know how to pronounce it. Uh, People on YouTube did both. (laughs) When you zoom in or zoom out, you see a similar pattern of circles with smaller circles off of it. Or in nature, if you look at a tree, the way branches branch off a trunk, branch off to sub-branches, branch off to leaves, and then leaves actually branch out inside their own structure, those all kind of look like the whole tree. That's a fractal in nature. The golden ratio, on the other hand, is a, is a ratio that is derived from the Fibonacci sequence and other number sequences. And honestly, go to the show notes at asksciencemike.com. I'll have links. It's way easier to understand visually. Uh, It's basically 1.618, I think, Um, and it's aspect ratio. You know, if you think of uh, 16 divided by 9 is the aspect ratio of an HDTV, right? Uh, This is an aspect ratio of a particular rectangle. That's what we're talking about, a ratio between two things. And what's funny about the golden ratio is it's not actually a ratio because... (laughs) Uh, It's not a rational number. It repeats indefinitely, and that means there's nothing in nature that actually has the golden ratio. A little piece of trivia for you. Uh, All that will make more sense if you go to the show notes. Um, Now, when you repeat the Fibonacci sequence using geometric figures that are squares of the Fibonacci numbers, so for example, one would be a square uh, with one unit of length on each side, Two would be a square whose sides were twice as long uh, and whose area was more than twice as long because that's how squares work. Three, it, you keep going up, you're lengthening the sides of these squares, and you stack them together to make triangles. The more you repeat that process, the closer you get to a rectangle whose proportions are the golden ratio, and it's kind of a fractal. And if you draw a spiral that starts in the corner of one one. Through this triangle, you get something that looks like a nautilus shale. Shale, man, it is Southern Science Mike today. 
<laughs> a nautilus shell. Sometimes the accent just comes out, and I like more than usual, and I don't know why. I, I love my uh, left temporal lobe. Uh, anyway, so all these things we see in nature and plants and animals and the formations of stars and galaxies. Here on Earth, bee reproduction is perfectly represented by the Fibonacci sequence because male bees only have one parent and female bees always have two. Pine cones, the spirals on the bottom of pine cones will usually add up to Fibonacci numbers and flower petals tend to be a Fibonacci number. Lots of things in the natural world tend to, not exclusively, but very, very frequently show up as numbers in the Fibonacci sequence. Now, more generally, fractals appear in nature all the time. And fractals are basically an algorithm. An, an algorithm, something in a computer, is nothing but taking the same step and repeating it over and over. Okay? So when you have a fractal, these steps create a feedback loop. And trends emerge regardless of scale. So if you look at the stock market, a graph of the stock market for a day, a week, a month, and a year, and you take the labels off, they are all going to have similar trends and similar movements. It would be hard for you to pick which was which. Trees, typically, are defined by a fractal equation as well. So if you look at the branch of a tree, the branch of the tree is kind of shaped like the entire tree. And different species of tree have different equations that kind of govern the way they grow, which is one way we make video games and generate trees using fractal equations. Uh, now, fractals and the Fibonacci sequence is not good at making specific predictions, but is instead good at helping you understand the behavior of a large data set in probabilistic terms. So about how likely is a particular stock to rise or fall tomorrow, or the entire market? Is it likely to go up or down in a year, and by how much, and how likely is that? The more data you have, and the less specific the inquiry, the better fractals are at helping you understand your data set. Now, the people who spend the most energy using math to trade stocks are also the most secretive about their math. Because today, stock trading is largely done on specialized supercomputers that execute unknown math. This is top secret math. Institutional traders don't share it. They don't get to publish their work because that's how they make the most money is by tweaking their algorithms to best predict the stock market. Now, math is great at describing reality. That's the underpinning of science, really. Uh, and fractals help us deal with data sets that are unpredictable to more traditional form of mathematics because of their unbalanced, nonlinear, irrational nature. But fractals and the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio and even the spirals derived from them are more interesting in pure mathematics than broad application in the natural world. The importance of these sequences tends to be overstated in pop culture. So in the design world, for example, uh, you'll hear that architecture is most beautiful when centered around the golden ratio. Or you'll hear that uh, art is most beautiful when centered around the golden ratio. But studies have actually failed to demonstrate that. When you show people different pieces of architecture or art that ascribes more or less close to the golden ratio, 
people show no additional favorability towards things with a golden ratio. And when you talk about the proportions of the human body, when people look at the golden ratio, they tend to pick really arbitrary starting and end points in order to have the human body conform to the golden ratio. For example, they'll go from the toes to the navel instead of the toes to the top of the head, which is kind of an arbitrary choice, right? And this happens because humans always search for meaning. We are designed by our genes, by our nature, some would say by God, to look for patterns and meaning. And so when something as interesting as the Fibonacci sequence has so many applications in the real world, we tend to look at it as some secret behind how the universe works to try to find meaning, which is one of the most fundamental human endeavors. It's tons of fun mathematically. Uh, I'm not sure how really significant it is as some uh, universal constant behind physics or biology or neurology. Uh, There do seem to be gene expression that happens in accordance with the Fibonacci sequence, Um, but that is probably just based on the additive nature of the sequence. So if you look at the way organisms grow, like a nautilus, for example, uh, that's exactly how a nautilus grows, is to keep adding these cells that are the size of the previous cells combined so the animal can grow, right? So I think pop culture blows it out of proportion. Uh, If you think I'm wrong, let me know on Twitter. Let me know on Facebook. I'd love to get feedback on this answer. My confidence level uh, on this question is much lower than usual, which is saying something because sometimes I'm just better than even odds on answering the question at all. So look forward to the feedback on this one. If you're not a math nut, no more math on this episode. Keep listening. Hi, Mike. This is Kylie from Columbus, Ohio. My question is this. What is the science behind war, and do you think the concept of world peace is at all possible? If not, how close do you think we can come? Will human beings ever stop killing each other? Thanks. So I didn't realize that it was Tough Questions Week on Ask Science Mike, but uh, (laughs) this is two in a row that I really had to research. I know a lot about human violence, um, but I, I had to organize my thoughts on war and the research I've done to come up with something cohesive, and I hope this helps answer the question. The science behind war is ironically, actually this wouldn't be irony at all, never mind, that was like Alanis Morissette irony. Uh, regardless, there's a lot of conflict behind the science of war because scientists don't agree when war entered the human drama. Some scientists say humans were much more prone to war before civilization. Uh, Steven Pinker would be in that camp. Other scientists say war didn't exist in any significant capacity among hunter-gatherers in ancient times, largely because it doesn't exist in any significant capacity among hunter-gatherers on the planet now. There are still hunter-gatherer human tribes on Earth today. Uh, Now, I look at chimpanzees, our closest genetic relative, and I think that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, pre-civilization humans were probably 
prone to go to war when one tribe had a significant numerical or technological advantage. And I say that because chimps, chimpanzees, only go to war when one side has an overwhelming advantage. If the sides are evenly matched, they'll avoid each other or even attempt reconciliation. Uh, Now, even if pre-civilization humans didn't go to war, if they didn't wage war, they were certainly violent within their tribes. Uh, Disputes over mates and resources, anthropology tells us and, and even human fossils show us that Uh, Humans are violent animals, unfortunately. Uh, Now, it is clear that once civilization was born, war became the normal course of human society. The very earliest civilizations on this planet went to war with each other. And they didn't stop. Throughout human history, war has been remarkably common Uh, Even European history, modern European history, is fraught with war. uh, And that war escalated in intensity once we hit industrialization. World War II had the highest death toll by far of any conflict in human history. It's terrifying how many people, military and civilians, were killed in World War II. Now, what's interesting is after World War II, interstate war, as in war between different nations, has been on the decline, and has even declined precipitously. Uh, and in, in its place, intrastate wars, like civil wars, wars within a nation-state, increased but started to decline in the 80s. So in the current geopolitical context, war is fading, and as infrequent as it's ever been since we've had civilization. And this factors in the data from groups like ISIS and conflicts in the Middle East. Violence is also in global decline. Not just war, but violence. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why that is. Uh, We have very large nation states with uh, nuclear deterrence. We have uh, more nations with stable legal systems, elected democracies, and police forces than any other time in history. And I'm not going to get into police brutality. That's a real thing. But in the data set, uh, a policed society so far is less violent, even factoring in police violence, than societies with smaller police forces. And I mean uh, like corrupt police forces. Anyway, so I'm going to get some email on that one. But I can't, I can't chase that rabbit trail or this is going to be a three-hour episode. <laughs> Anyway, regardless is when you factor in the total amount of violence on the planet, it is in decline. That doesn't mean war is gone. Climate change could bring war back with a vengeance because of the mechanisms that drive war. Let's talk about that. Because talking about the mechanisms of war is the way to talk about avoiding war. First of all, wars generally require two groups with some defining difference in identity. That can be racial identity, it can be ethnic identity, it can be religious identity, it can be as simple as national identity. But you take pride in social identity, be it racial, ethnic, religious, or national, and it creates an in-group, out-group dynamic, and that's an ingredient for war. In Europe, Protestant versus Catholic has fueled war. Look at Northern Ireland. In the Middle East, Arab versus Jew. In a modern context as well, ethnicity. Am I Ukraine? Am I Ukrainian or am I Russian in ethnicity? 
And now you get this conflict between these groups because you have people who identify as ethnically Ukrainian and ethnically Russian living in the same area and waging war. Uh, Now, once you have an in-group, out-group dynamic, it lowers empathetic responses in the human brain toward the out-group, meaning if I have a lot of national pride or a lot of religious pride in being a Protestant, and I begin to view Catholics as the out-group because of social identity, I no longer feel empathy towards Catholics. That's huge, because if I don't feel empathy towards someone, I view them as less than human, and I don't mind if they're killed or harmed, or even if I actively do something that hurts them. So one piece of you know eliminating war is avoiding intense tribalism and social identity. This is, this is rooted in the human brain's tendency towards tribalism. We can't let our social classifications become tribes. We can't do it. That means we have to reduce the emphasis on pride and social identity, but not at the expense of oppressed groups. Sometimes pride in your identity is what keeps you going if you're oppressed. Look at black Americans. If you go back to when slavery was legal or when segregation was the law of the land, you had to take pride in your black identity to have the meaning to continue to function. And even today, I fully believe, and I think the data supports me, that people of color in America don't have the same experience as white Americans. And so they need some social pride in order to function and face that adversity. But ultimately, if every group trumps into that, if then the response to that is for the culturally dominant group, white Americans, to invest in their pride as well, guess what? We're creating an in-group, out-group dynamic, and a race war becomes more likely, right? Empathy is the antidote to in-group, out-group dynamics. Now, here's another problem. Wars generally involve a pursuit of wealth or power or revenge. They are cold and calculating is how wars originate. The people who wage war are generals and political leaders. So how do we subvert that? Well, America has become much less likely to go to war because the American public has less patience for it. And so the American leadership has more difficulty mobilizing troops for any amount of time because of war fatigue. Also, making sure that resources are distributed equitably between nations is essential in avoiding war. Climate change will increase scarcity of some natural resources, including water. If we're not careful about how water gets shared on this planet, thirsty people will be ready to fight, I promise you. So I'm not making some you know, macroeconomic statement here about redistribution of wealth. I'm saying to avoid war resources have to be distributed equitably. Finally, we're finding economic interdependence prevents war. The European Union is made up of countries that have historically been foes. Uh, Germany and France have fought a lot of wars, for example, but today their economies are intertwined. And for all the hand-wringing of the U.S. and China, those countries are very unlikely to go to war because they essentially share a single economy. Uh, It would be like conjoined twins going to war. It's difficult to tell where one ends and the other begins. We are more peaceful than we've ever been. 
I worry that we can't become much more peaceful than we are, though, without reexamining the way we do society. Sometimes I see a decline in empathy today. Sometimes I see a trend away from equitable resource distribution. Economic interdependence is certainly going well. Social identity seems to get more fractured. Um, The only way forward, the only way to move towards a world peace is to focus on empathy and fairness and to reduce us versus them. This is why, when people say, why are you a Christian? This is a big part of it, because when I read the Gospels, that's what I see Jesus talking about, is letting go of us versus them, of caring for fellow man, of taking care of those who have less. All those things create peace or shalom. And that's why I'm a Christian, as I believe the gospel can help make a more peaceful world when it's used as a balm of healing and not a sword of division. Our next question came from the email inbox all the way from Australia, and I will not attempt to read it in an Australian accent. It's so bad as to be offensive. Here we go. I've just seen the movie Inside Out by Pixar. Hopefully you've seen it. It's set inside a child's brain and is a very clever movie. My question is this. How might faith have changed the landscape of Riley's brain? So the first thing I want to say is, although there will not be spoilers in this answer, themes from the movie Inside Out will be involved. So if you haven't seen the film and are concerned about having minor insight into the thematic pieces of the story, go ahead and hit pause and come back after you see the film. Okay, so Riley is the main setting. She's not really a character in Inside Out. The main characters are her emotions, fear, anger, disgust, sadness, and joy. And in Riley's brain, joy is the leader. Now, this is based on real psychology, which I really appreciated. But Pixar did leave out two basic emotions. There are seven basic human emotions in most psychological theory. And the other two are contempt and surprise. And also, they're in this control room in the brain, and it shows that emotions constantly run the brain. And I didn't like that because... Your brain is actually run by your prefrontal cortex most of the time, and it doesn't have feelings. And there's there's a tug of war kind of between your limbic system and your feelings and your prefrontal cortex, and that really wasn't depicted in the film. But I love the way it did show competing impulses, the way these different feelings were in charge of the brain at different times. Uh, if they would have included another control room, maybe with a computer, I don't know, uh, that would have made the movie more neurologically accurate, but probably less fun to watch. (laughs) But I I do love that they accurately showed that human consciousness is not some cohesive, unified whole, but a competition between different impulses and feelings. I also love the visual of personality islands, the idea that our experiences and memories shape our personalities. You know, if you think about Goofball Island as a social strategy, uh, Riley learned as a child that, you know, making monkey noises with their parents would uh, disarm them and create a sense of unity. And so this goofball became a part of our personality. And that's how we work. Loved that. I loved how the story illustrated the complementary aspects of different emotions, that as we mature, our emotions become more complicated. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. 
Now, if I think about this landscape of Riley's brain in the film, we have a control room with emotions, you have personality islands, you have long-term memory and all these other parts of the, the brain that do different things. What would be changed if Riley was a person of faith? It depends on her faith, of course. Now, most people of faith, if they're serious about it at all, would have a faith island, a part of their personality that it incorporated additional types of interaction with others and uh, different types of seeing the world. Okay, so church language, church culture, worship style, all those things would be a part of her faith island in her brain. Now, depending on how Riley saw God, it would affect what it did to the control room. If Riley believed in a vindictive or angry God, then uh, you would see anger and fear at her controls more often. Uh, She would see disgust enter the picture and team up with anger anytime she viewed someone who was an outsider, uh, who was not part of her faith tradition. And this harkens back to our last answer about war. Deeply held, angry God-based faiths tend to be afraid of outsiders. Now, people who see God as mainly loving, of course, would actually see joy and sadness share the controls most of the time. Anger would be much less likely to get a seat um, at the control console. Uh, But when you combine joy and sadness, you get an emotion we call empathy. This warmth towards another, a feeling of what they feel. That requires combining what we consider two opposite feelings. Uh, And people who believe in a loving God, of course, are people who are more empathetic and less angry when they deeply believe and regularly contemplate God's love. That does cause changes in the brain. So if we look at the inside-out landscape, that's what I see. You've got a faith island, uh, and depending on whether she worshipped an angry God or a loving God, either anger and fear would run the console most of the time, or joy and sadness. And that is the brain science of Inside Out. Got to be one of my favorite questions I've ever gotten on the show. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of Ask Science Mike. Um, I do want to tell you, I am doing more events than I've ever done. In addition to Wild Goose this week at North Carolina, next week I'll be in Redlands, California at Redlands Church talking about cosmology and creation. I'll be in New York after that. Uh, A little bit later, I'm going to be in Fort Worth at Collective Church. I'll go Forefront Church in New York City. I'm doing something called the Sandbox Collective Online. You can see all this stuff by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on Events. I keep that page updated. As we get closer to events, of course, they're more likely to be on the page slash have more information. I'd love to see you at anything I've got coming up. And uh, I'll mention whatever's coming up on the show so you know you can just listen and you'll know when I'm going to be near you. But I do want to say this. 2015 for me is almost completely booked out. So if I'm not coming anywhere near you and you'd like me to, or you've been thinking about booking me but haven't done it yet, if you want it to be this year, you're just about out of time. I'm probably only going to take two or three more bookings for the rest of the year. Uh, So if you're interested in having me come talk about science and faith or doubt or atheism uh, or any of the things you hear on the show or even doing a live Ask Science Mike in your community, be it a church, a conference, a college, whatever, uh, just go to Ask Science Mike and click on Book Mike 
and I'd love to come see you. That's absolutely my favorite thing. The show is fun. I love hearing from the listeners, but boy, do I love to see people face-to-face. It just completely makes my day. Keep your questions coming. You can put a question in by going to asksciencemike.com. There's a button you can record a question and send it to me, or you can type a question. That's a great way to send me anonymous questions. Your questions make the show possible. That's why it's your show. And uh, this is my living now, so if you'd like to help me make a living doing Ask Science Mike, uh, you can go to our Patreon page and participate and you know offer me a couple bucks a month and keep the show on the air. I appreciate all of you that do that. It <laughs> blows me away. Uh, I do want to remind you, you can cancel or change a pledge at any time. I see that happening all the time. Don't feel guilty about that. <laughs> if you lower your pledge, don't feel guilty about that. If you cancel your pledge, don't feel guilty about that. Never, ever feel coerced into donating to this show. And those of you that have increased your pledges, I really appreciate that. Just make sure you're not blowing your budget on my show. (laughs) I do want to thank uh, Haley Hyde, who picked all the questions this week, Greg Nordine, who makes the show sound great. He's our producer. And of course, my BFF, Jeb Bottiford, for writing the show's theme song and segues. If you need original music done for your podcast or musical or whatever, Jeb can write, he can perform, he can record. He's a one-stop shop. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Uh, See you next week. Ah!